Good evening. Good to uh, be with you. Um, I am from Washington, D.C. Um, no one's getting up to leave. So, um, a small little boring town. And um, I have a wife, and she is a potter and a high school art teacher. And I think she's doing the best pottery she's ever, ever done. Um, people say, does your wife miss you? Right? I go, no, she's in her pottery studio. And, and, um, and my mother was a potter, so there's something to that, right? If any of you have any insights you can share with me on that, I would welcome that. Um, I have a chocolate lab. He is uh, 11 months old, he's 90 pounds, and he is, uh, he's successfully chewed apart everything. And, um, uh, and you know, when you become an empty nester, the dog becomes your child. Sort of like in the beginning, remember when you were just married and you had a dog and it was, you, you'd carry him around like this, right? And then you had a child and, <laughs> right? Well, well, it goes around that when you become an empty nester, you do this again. And I'm like, really? You know, he's a dog. So I'm in that season. Um, it has been a delight uh, to be with your pastors, Pastor Jeremy, um, it's becoming a good friend, and um, the staff here of Pastor Jason and Ethan, and then I've met the boss of the whole plant, Sarah, and um, uh, she has just made it so easy for me in coming here. So, um, and I'm sure this weather is like this all the time, right? My goodness, I'm staying, uh, and, and it's very nice. So how many of you were with me in the workshop yesterday. Okay, you know, there's the pressure on, I have to say something different now with you guys, but let me um, ask you, now that you know somewhat of where I'm going and what it was about, you may have a question that would help the whole group. So let me invite that group to think in that way. So um, how do you begin to process um, what I believe and what I'm thinking and what I'm researching. Maybe I can talk to you about my four laboratories. Do you remember um, the TV show, The Addams Family, right? That was like my favorite TV show, still is. Um, I'm not sure what that means. But Uncle Fester had a trap door. Remember Uncle Fester? Remember? And he would open the trap door and he'd go out and, um, Gomez and Marticia would have a problem and he would go down below to solve it. And you know, the, the house would shake as he blew himself up and he would come up with a solution, right? I suspect that one of the things that we need in a beginning thinking is um, a laboratory in which to see how faith and the non-Christian world interact. Sometimes we move those two entities together fast and hard rather than slow motion and begin to see what is happening in our world. We woke up yesterday and the world is beginning to change significantly. And now um, sharing faith has gotten to a whole new level, maybe of complexity. And so I'm going to talk about my laboratories and maybe one of the ideas is for you to find yours. 
And a laboratory is something you make discoveries in. For instance, have you ever interviewed a little grandchild? Right? And a little grandchild will just tell you, right? And you interview them and you ask them some questions and that little grandchild will talk to you about God and faith and where the world came from. That's a little working laboratory of you beginning to understand where the child is. Well, let me tell you about my laboratories, can I? So, about five years ago, um, we built the big $7 million thing. Um, the building, I had planted a church in Washington, D.C. area about 25 years ago. And we built this big building and we opened the doors and it filled up, right? Filled up, we had the newest toy in the, in the area. And we vacuumed up all the church people from all the struggling churches around us, right? And I, I had to meet with all the pastors for pastor breakfast that month. And we had the, the newest gizmo um, playground and so all the preschool moms you know, we're there. And um, I remember we were celebrating and we, you know, our first service, everybody was so happy. And I said, I'm done. I'm done. And this is not your story, this is mine. And meaning, I don't recommend this, but this is what happened. And I just said, I'm done because I had been walking on Christian carpet doing Christian handshakes, drinking Christian coffee, and I was, I was dying, meaning I still believed everything, um, but I had to begin to interact with some kind of a new laboratory. And I didn't know what to do because I loved, loved my church, I loved my children. Every year I would, um, we would do a children's sermon and sometimes I would put a little one on the pulpit and interview him. What could go wrong there, right? And, and I remember one year, the little one um, over the microphone called me Aster Pal. And it stuck. And I pulled his baptismal certificate. And, um, and I loved them. But I, I was in my final trimester of ministry and I needed something different. So I did what every minister does. I went to a blues bar. And... Halfway between our church and my house was this horrible little cave that had a sign that says Blues Jam on Sunday night. And so I, start, I went in. And I remember when I walked in, you know, you know, um, you know was I, you know, it was dark. I didn't, couldn't see any faces. And I went and sat down. And the blues band played blues music. My baby left me, right? Who knows B.B. King's The Thrill Is Gone song, you know? We grew up on that one. And my health left me, and my joints left me, and my money left me, and my wives have left me, and blues music, right? And I was blue. By the way, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he looked to heaven and he said, why'd you forsake me? That's the beginning of every blues song. He's the ultimate blues singer. And um, and so I kept going because it was, uh, I was blue, right? And so after about four months, I walked in and there was a group, there was a table like this with about 10 people on it. 
And I walked in and they said, sit down, we have questions for you. And I'm thinking they're gonna throw me out, right? And I'm thinking, you know, that, that would be good. Um, and they said, who are you? And I always tell the truth and I said, no one. And they said, what do you do? And I said, nothing. And um, the waitress Beatrice flitted by and Beatrice was a dear soul, very severely bipolar. And, um, and by the way, we're doing a research project called How Do the Mentally Disabled Receive Faith? Do They Have an Antenna? And I've got about 10 researchers working with me and they have an antenna. But she flitted by and said, I think he's a priest. And I thought, oh, thank you for that. You know, gosh, you know, I'm outed, right? Yeah. And, and I'm sitting there and they all laughed because you know, the idea of a, of a priest in a blues bar was a bit of a fantasy to them. And, and they read my face, and um, they said, you are, aren't you? And I said, well, you know, the pastor thing. But by the way, I, I've never been able to get them off the priest thing, so I stopped fighting that battle. <laughs> and, um, and then they were angry, like really, really angry. And they wouldn't talk to me for like two months. And I still came in. And because I knew, I knew who was sleeping with who, I knew who was getting whatever, I knew, I knew you, know, you know too much. And you know, if you have a pastor brain, you just have this radar thing going on, right? As to what's going on. And so, so I'm married to Mother Teresa. And I went home. And, and the key to my 35 years of marriage is I give the minimal information and I only answer her questions. I don't give a whole lot after that. So I said, um, could I have some of my friends over from the bar? And, um, you know, Deb said, well, who are they? And I had a strike of brilliance. I said, well, they're not in jail, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, and... De Deb just sees behind everything I pull, and so 50 of them came to our house. And we don't have a big house, so they're all squished in there, and they're wondering when I'm going to do the turn and burn thing, right? And they're smoking on the deck, and, they're, um, and it was lovely. It was lovely. And then we had a Super Bowl party, and about 60 of them came. And... Um, I saw uh, this woman that I can only tell you is probably the foulest mouth woman I've ever met in my life. Um, I don't embarrass, she embarrasses me. And she was four foot 11 and she had size four feet. She looked like Yosemite Sam. Remember the cartoon character? And I saw her walking towards my, my wife and I thought, oh, Mother Mary, this is gonna be bad. Um, and I'm not gonna be able to fix it. And they became best friends. And I thought, what is God up to here, right? And um, so then I invited them to our, our church. Our new big church building was just a few blocks, a couple blocks down the street. And I invited all of them to come. And every one of them said, no, we don't walk in a building like that. And I said, what do you mean you don't walk in a building like that? I said, I've been in this blues bar um, nine months. I've gone to 24 child custody cases. I drove you home at night when I shouldn't have. Um, 
I don't think it's a underestimate that I had thousands of prayer requests. They were my peeps, right? And they said, no. Now I was mad. <laughs> and I said, you know, what's the deal with you guys? And they said, do your thing in the blues bar. And I said, no, you've never cleaned the bathrooms. And, and they cleaned the bathrooms. They put plywood on the, on the pool tables. Um, Yosemite Sam um, made coloring books for all the children of the parents that would have them that weekend. And the blues band sang. And the guy that slept in his car, and we had as many PhDs as homeless guys in the bar, um, he sang Amazing Grace, and he brought the house down. And I, I spoke on what resurrection are you looking for and named the number of resurrections, like I'm going to get my health back and going to get my family back. Which one are you looking for? And I refound my call. I refound my call. And um, to make a long story short, um, we sold the building, <laughs> um, and I stayed in the bar. <laughs> And, um, and it's a journey that I'm on, and I, when I'm home, I travel about 50% of the time now. I, I just got four or five texts from my bar peeps saying, where are you and what are you doing? Um, they, they asked me to explain this to them, by the way. And, and it's one of the most interesting explanations. They think they wrote the tattoo book, my bar. And maybe they did, I don't know. Um, but I refound my call, and the working laboratory I'm in is I have about 500 non-Christians non that call me Pastor Al, and it is the wild, wild west. And um, I sort of come with the bar. And if you think of a chaplaincy, um, and that space is my parish, that's the idea. And if you think in this way, you say, yeah, that's a little extreme because we're not going to sell our building and all go to a blues bar. I hope not, you know. Um, but here's the thing is 85% of the population is not coming back in our buildings. It might be a little bit lower for Tulsa, but this is the national figure. They're not coming back. And so we have to think about how in this time and place do we um, reach out to the non-Christian world? The church is built of Lego blocks. You take it apart and you reconfigure it with the timeless truths in its time and its space. And we're in one of those times. We're coming to a time where the church the vast majority of the population is not coming to us, where um, the public spaces are starting to get angry and dangerous, and the Christians are considered the bigots. We are there. We are there. And so um, this is one of the most alive laboratories I've ever been in, and, um, and they make me cry. Um, when I leave town, I miss my wife. Um, I sometimes miss my dog. And I miss my blues bar. And I got a number of, of, of texts today saying, when will you be back and can you explain to us what you're doing and why you're doing it? 
It's one of the most interesting spiritual conversations I have with them. This is my, my first laboratory. So, so I'd like to say something. Um, when I began to see the blues bar peeps as my parishioners, I began to care about something. I cared about what was on their skin, and for the first time I saw something called a tattoo. You know, I'd seen them, I'd, I've grown up around tattoos, but I never cared about caring about them, right? But now they're all over my parishioners. And um, there was a lady in the bar that was the a counselor for post-traumatic stress special forces. Uh, all those guys come back and they all kill themselves. And I interviewed her tattoos, and all her tattoos were about all her men had, had killed themselves in spite of the counseling, and one she had gotten emotionally involved with recently, and she was, she was done. She was done. But what I discovered is that when I, I asked her, does your tattoo have a story? They poured out all the secrets of their soul. And I said, how did I miss this? How did a guy in his mid-50s miss this? Forty-some percent of the population has a tattoo, and a lot more are coming, and I completely missed it. For some reason, in this life cycle in history, the inside is writing on the outside, telling its secrets and stories on the live canvas of the skin in permanent ink. And um, I might show a few slides tonight, but tomorrow during the Sunday school, I'm going to be doing this and show you what I found in the Sunday school hour, and I hope you'll come. We won't have time to go through it tonight. Um, I've got both these books on sale um, there in the back. I hope you'll, I hope you'll buy one. So um, where is Jim? So Jim came to the workshop yesterday, and he did something uh, today or yesterday. Come and tell us about it. Assigned us yesterday that we're in the session here if we would do a tattoo interview today, so or yesterday whenever you could. So I was at uh, real busy until this afternoon about 1:30. I finished up my d duties I was doing, and so I went to my where I work. I'm a veterinarian, and I have a, I work with 25 women, and uh, I have a young lady there that I know her. She's new and the youngest person in the, in our veterinary clinic. And so I said, uh, Miranda, could I talk to you about your tattoo? She said, sure. She wasn't that busy right then. So we're in the conference room, and we talked about it, and you wouldn't believe what I learned in about 15 to 20 minutes about Miranda from her tattoo. So I do circles, and uh, so here's Miranda right here. She's 23 years old, and when she was 15, uh, her grandparents died, and her... Uh, her mother and her father were here, and mother's mother's brother and mother's and the brother's wife came after her mama. They're drugged up, all on drugs. They were going to get her. So daddy's protecting mama, and he with a knife. They were slashing on the guy. He anyway, he didn't die. But then, uh, then shortly after that, her younger brother was killed in a motorcycle accident 
And then uh, shortly after that, so then a year later, her parents divorced. And then um, she is suicidal, but she hung in there and one of her tattoos says, she survived all that course, and she says she's a warrior right here on her wrist. No hesitation, she's a warrior. Then this, uh, she has siblings down here, three siblings, and this sibling here had a couple of grandchildren, so she put the nephews on her wrist up here. And finally, this is not the same mother that she was raised by. The mother is just lost it all with all this crisis going on. And um, so then she has two little elephants on her to represent the two little nephews, and this goes on. Finally, her mother now has has pretty much terminal mammary cancer. Mother's not going to make it. So she has written another place that, uh, you know, to the moon and back, I'll love you forever, in her mother's handwriting. Hmm. So this gal, at age 23, has been through unbelievable trauma in her life, and I didn't, I didn't know that, but it was so amazing to find out that much. And I said, do you mind? So she was wide open to share. You know, no hesitation at all. Uh, Pastor Al tells some of the folks are real hesitant, but she's wide open. Said, so I took pictures of her tattoos, and we did a selfie. She did a selfie for me. And, and uh, uh, so she, I said, can I say your name? She says, sure, I don't care. So she's, uh, and I said, Where, where's God in all this? She said, I don't know. But I just believe everything happens for a reason. So, I don't know, that seems like a pretty wide open door to me. So, I was thrilled to find out in that short period of time, just by listening to her, because I tend to, tend to go, I have all these technicians around, people with tattoos all over, and I'm thinking, I oh, got you guys, <laughs> get over this stuff. They're not going to get over it. You know, they're going to. So, it was just a breakthrough to me today, see how that can work. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, I, I just uh, thought it was really revealing mm -hmm. what can go on. So. If, if, if Jim starts going to like tattoo studios and things, would you call me? <laughs> I, I can handle it. I've, I've seen this before. And you start interviewing tattoos, you can't stop. Um, in my generation, we had something called journals or diaries. In this generation, they have something called tattoos. May I speak in our language for a minute? Um, I suspect the image of God has gotten so desperate to talk in our lifetime in space, it's writing on the wrapper. And I completely missed it. And it's, it's not a fad, it's a phenomenon of our time. Um, people ask me, Al, are you for or against tattoos? I said, look, I, I don't have any, by the way. I get invited to about 30 tattoo conventions a year, and I don't, I, they put me right in the middle of all the tattoo artists with this little book. And I don't have a tattoo yet, so there's a problem there, but we're going to work on that. Um, one of my hopes in the time that I have with you tonight and Sunday school and then in um, the preaching hour is to give um, you a few little things that you can experiment with in your laboratory. And one of them is um, a tattoo interview. Does your tattoo have a story? And see if you can wait for it, okay? If I were to rename this book, God and Tattoos, Why Are People Writing on Themselves? I would retitle it, Wait For It. And tattoos are spring-loaded. 
You touch them and they talk. A tattoo is an exhibitionist, even if its owner is not. So I want to say a couple more things about this, and then I'm going to move on. And I'm actually giving a commercial for tomorrow morning and today. So chapter two of the tattoo book is this. Suburbia took away tombstones and cemeteries to build houses and malls and golf courses. The tattoo artist brought the new cemetery back. The entry tattoo, the most common entry tattoo, and the most common tattoo is a memorial for someone who has died. That can be something in the actual date of the person, it can be an actual face, or it can be a flower or a fish that represents the person. So think with me for a minute. If you're walking in, a, in the world right now and somebody walks by you with you and yet they have more than two or three tattoos, you've just walked by a cemetery, a sacred space. And the, the tattoo generation said this. Um, we don't get into the, the whole viewing, hearse, graveside, the clinical nature that the West has done to death. They wanted to get back to a wake, something that they felt. And they invented the tattoo for the memorial to the dead. What is the tattoo that fuels the whole industry? is the memorial to who died in tattoo. And I suspect this, I've done something like 900 tattoo interviews now, that all the other tattoos, along with the death, memorial to the death, the other tattoos vector off of that. So think with me for a minute. The Christian church is all about um, what to do with death, right? The tattoo industry is all about what do we do with death? This is happening in our time and space. Um, so that's one of my working laboratories. I thought I was done with interviewing tattoos, um, but we've got another book coming out. And, um, and I have had so much fun with the tattoo industry. For some reason, we've earned trust and they let me in. And I just came from the Pittsburgh Tattoo Convention and 10,000 people came to that. And uh, I put this little sign up there, um, and the title of the book is Why Are People Writing on Themselves? And I probably had about 300 people come up at this last convention and said, why am I writing on myself, right? And very sweet. It's a very sweet moment. And I'll show you some more things that, that you will survive tomorrow morning at Sunday School on, on this. My third laboratory is a residency program. And so a number of the ministers, especially in the PCA, asked me if I would create something where um, we could have a coaching relationship and we actually research our way back into the wild, into the post-Christian world. And I've got about 30 PCA ministers that study with me. And this is my heartbeat. Um, I am fiercely defensive of our ministers. Um, I, I am one and I know them. Um, we do up to 50 evangelism case studies in a year, and we do 10 recirculating projects. I am not um, jealous to teach them what I know as much as what they discover in their laboratory. The thing that ignites the energy towards evangelism like nothing else I've seen is discovery. Did you notice Jim? 
Jim could have talked another 30 minutes. Did you notice that? He found something. And so the residency is about um, discovery. And our ministers are, um, they're just hitting it out of the ballpark in what they're doing. And the, the fourth laboratory is I do workshops. I did one here yesterday. Um, that was such a delightful group. We had about 20 people here and such a delightful group. We all worked together. And I do evangelism conferences. Um, and I'm doing an evangelism conference in Chattanooga, April 13th and 14th. Maybe you'll come down for that. These are my working laboratories. Um, I find that when I get away from one of those laboratories, I stop making discoveries. This is what I observed about my heart today. I've been about two and a half weeks away from my bar, and I noticed a judgmentalism rising inside of me about them. About them. And as I drive my car and I get back to them and we touch skin and there's a lot of hugs, that'll go back down. Am I making sense? I've observed that about myself today. And I wonder what that is, and maybe you can help me with that as we, uh, as we go spend time together. So, um, two things. May, may I erase your artwork? Yes. You looks like a football player. Really? I, it did, didn't it? Um, so, my first question for you is, what do you think evangelism is? And there's no right or wrong here. We're working on this. And every time I work with a group like this, we discover something together. So we're a team, okay? So there's not a, this isn't a test. You won't get an A or B. Well, maybe even well. But you won't get an A or B. Um, what is evangelism? What are you thinking? Sharing the gospel. Okay. This is a stolen answer, but I love it. Yeah, evangelism is, well, don't start writing until after I say it because it'll be convoluted. <laughs> loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then loving your neighbor with what's left over. May I put this up? You can sit, say it however you want. <laughs> By the way, um, Jason, whenever anybody asks me and I... And I have to put it in the language with my... You know, they, my bar peeps found out I was an evangelist, and they were like, how did you get in here? And, and they said, we like you, but we don't, what's an evangelist doing here? And they said, what are you? I said, evangelism is love. And they went, okay. Evangelism is love. And one of the ways that you can identify your parish is who breaks your heart with love. All those little grandchildren, that's your parish. Right? So, what is evangelism? Telling God's story. Telling God's story. Telling God's story. Thank you, that's good. But I would add that telling that story is not <coughs> with the words, but it's also with your actions. Yeah. 
So evangelism is action. Good, I like it. I like it. Yes. Taking someone's hand and showing them the way to Jesus. I like this. Take their hand. Beautiful. Yes, sir. One beggar telling another where to get food. I'm just going to put a beggar, okay? Very good. I love that. Walk with them. Walk with them, okay? They say it's about relationship and um, exposing your own weakness. Relationship and weakness. I love it. I can think about what you said about the, um, you're like showing someone your most treasured, uh, what did you say the other day? Your service. Your, yeah, like your most treasured thing. Like it's, it's something that's precious that, you know. You want them to love what you, you love. You want them to love what you love, yeah. Which I guess is love, but. <laughs> love what you love. Okay, good. Thank you. Yes. It sounds like what, what you're introducing us to this idea that evangelism starts with listening. So evangelism is listening. Good. I think it's connecting with the people that are in the place that you're in. God puts you in weird places you never thought you'd be in fighting cancer or going through rehab or, you know, things that you don't think Christians even should have happened to them, but you're with a group of people who are struggling with the same things, connecting with people who are in the same place that you're at. Did that happen to you? Let me show you my tent. <laughs> you were in a place where other people were on chemo? Yes, my, my husband died when he was very sick. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's a whole community, isn't it? Mm. Thank you. Yes, sir. I, I'm a terrible evangelist, but where I start the conversation often is declaring the glory of God. God's glory. Okay. Wonders at his creation or some aspect of his truth. By the way, one of the things that we're working on is you know how most of our evangelism, um, our pitches or whatever we call them, starts with man has a problem, he's a sinner, right? You know, scripture doesn't start with that. Scripture starts with the blessing that you were created to be loved and, you know, with the image of God. And so maybe we need to rethink where we start, right? And um, intuitively, the image of God knows it's not an accident. It knows there's got to be some kind of meaning. Every soul in my bar, I'll tell you, asks three questions, sometimes in colorful language. But, um, where did I come from? Why am I here? What happens after I die? And by the way, we had a, a bar peep die last night, and we're going to do a funeral when we get back. Um, right in the bar. And um, 
But sometimes we start. Maybe this is where we start. Psychic thing, or, yeah. could you follow me around the country and be a plant in the workshops? Okay, all right. The pay is good, so not really. But um, how honest were we with the other side? Pretty honest. Can we get honest here? Can I get one out of the way? Okay, I don't fear anything because God is with me. I'm going to put that right over here. <laughs> what do we fear? Rejection. Failure. Strained relationships. How do you spell it? A strained relationship? A strange. I failed spelling, okay? So. Isolation. Ooh, what do you mean? Isolation. <laughs> being, being alone. Even if you're in a crowd, you can be alone, isolated. You have no relationship with other people, no shared values or understanding or you can be isolated like uh, we have people who can't get out to church where they stay older crippled they stay in homes and they have not much contact with the outside world <coughs> thank you what if they keep turning their light on me i love i uh, Tulsa thinks differently. I like this. Turn the light on me. I like that. What if I'm... Uh, this is very selfish. Uh, I'm not going to know what to say. I'm not smart enough. You know, like, I don't have it together. church or by a ministry of some sort, I don't want to be lumped in with that group. You'll hit a wound. 
said in my bar, this is Pastor Al, and the guy told me in many colorful words to get my you-know-what out of the bar. And then he started yelling. He yelled a kind of, he yelled for 48 minutes. And he got red, and he, um, um, he was so angry, he was shaking. And at the end of that 47 minutes, um, said another colorful words and he said when does your group gather and he came right and he sat in our little gathering and I said are there any prayer requests and he said what the heck is it he didn't say heck what the heck is a prayer request and I said it's when you tell God what hurts and he said my daughter's in a mental health hospital and he began to cry and cry and cry Guess who my number one bodyguard in the bar is now? You know, that guy. That guy. So we step out of this building, we step on wounds, don't we? Don't we? Like landmines. Pardon? Like landmines. Like landmines. So here we are wanting to evangelize, and we take a baby step, and our leg gets thrown off, right? I get it. I get it. What else do we fear? Can I share an observation that I'm seeing wrong with me with all this? And I'm trying to sidetrack it, so stop me if I am. But a lot of these drive us to do really poor evangelism by like, setting those tip tracks on restaurant tables and things like that, <laughs> which is it, it, clearly driven by fear. You still have the motive enough to want to reach out to people, but then we just end up doing it in really, really poor ways. I'm just going to put the whole track thing. <laughs> okay. Okay. By the way, I think there was a time and space. Who just died? Billy Graham. And um, Billy Graham had a great run in his time and space. And we're not in that time and space. And God designed us to be in this time and space to take the timeless truth in this space. Um, are you saying that um, it seems to me that we're afraid of suffering? Uh, you know, is that to me is the, the more than fear. It seems like suffering, suffering, like sharing in the suffering of Christ. Like when you were yelled at for 48 minutes, that hurts. Uh, when it, it, it's almost like you had to suffer that in order to reap the fruit on the other side. And many times we are not willing or we are scared of that suffering period that is a dying to self because it's we are we are rejected, we are failing, we all these things are dying to self. And so but if we just allow it to to go and run its course, like when you did with that man and there is a moment where fruit comes on the other end, and maybe that's the problem: is that we don't want to suffer. Well spoken. Can I ask you? Did you just sit there while he ranted? I did. You didn't say anything. You just listened. Yeah, it happens all the time. <laughs> so there was a lady in my bar, and she's a CEO of her company. Very tall 
shocking, beautiful woman, but this was her high, this is her secret bar. This is her place, and she didn't want me be in there. So for a year, I would walk in one side of the bar, and she would get up and walk on the other. And I think she gave me fig, finger signals now and then, and it wasn't this. And um, so three months ago, she came up to me, and she said, Pastor Al, could you have a cup of coffee with me? I said, well, sure. And, and I met her there, and she goes, Pastor Al, can we sit outside? I go, well, yeah. So we sat outside, and she lit into me. And she called me colorful things in about 10 languages. And I don't get flustered. I don't get embarrassed. I don't start shaking. Um, I don't get red. I did all those things. <laughs> and I thought, man, she's got my buttons, like, down. But she had a Christian con man father, and I became him. Right? You get it? And she yelled for like 58 minutes. <laughs> and and um, um, and then she started crying. And she cried for about 30 or 40 minutes. And I said, honey, I'm so sorry. And she said, she said Pastor, I don't know if I believe any of it. And I said, let me believe it for you for now. Let me believe it for you. So one of the things that I'm going to talk about is I think we're shifting from the age of the brick and mortar to the age of the parish. And I'm going to talk about what that means. And one of the core of a parish minister is this. Like St. Patrick who went to Southern Ireland, I am yours and you are mine. Let's start there. You don't have to do something to get in. You're already in. I am yours and you are mine. Guess what my dear uh, lady said to me when I left bar two and a half weeks ago? She looked at me and she said, you are ours and we are yours. That's how she said goodbye to me. That was the lady that was yelling, right? And she, she's not saying hallelujah and re reciting the Apostles' Creed, but she's mine. And we're going to figure it out. You okay? Um, Pastor Ethan, can you take a picture of that? You already did it? Yeah. You are so ahead of me. Um, this was implied from your earlier stories, but I pray that they're not going to feel like they fit in where I'm going or working. Fellowship. They're not going to fit in. They won't feel like they fit. Like you said, they're not going to go back in for this. So, um, I'm going to go somewhere with that, okay? So, um, I did a workshop down in New Orleans on Halloween day, and I went to French Quarter on Halloween night. <laughs> I am scarred for life. <laughs> but um, I was with 10 very conservative ministers for nine hours, and then I went to the French Quarter on Halloween night. That's what scarred you. You know, you know my counselor said I'll be better. So, um, But we invented a word in that every one of the workshops invents something, and maybe we'll invent something tonight. But we invented this word called building brain. What that means is every thought, every dollar, every plan, 
every message, every organization, every meeting in the church, every um, imagination, every innovation leads into the building in our building brain, right? And here we're now in a place where 85% of the population is not going back in that space. And this is a wonderful space, by the way. But we're in a metric now. We have to think about how to do this. So I, I am going to create more questions than answers. And then I just leave town, and Pastor Jeremy will answer all the questions. <laughs> so um, I suspect that we are in the age of the parish. And a parish is a defined space. It does have a church in it, but it's not the epicenter. And one of the things I'm beginning to work with a number of our church planters. Now, a church planter is someone that goes and starts a new church. Our research has shown even our church planters are recollecting people that have had six prior churches and six prior pastors. So we're not breaking. So right from the beginning with the church planners I'm working with, we have this concept that there'll be 100 people on Sunday morning and 100 people out in the wild that will never go into the building, and this is your parish. Can I say this in a different way? We've done studies with our ministers. The more non-Christians they know, the better their mental health. Can I take that one more step? They, our ministers, including you, but I'm speaking of ordained ministers, need the experience that their ordination works in the wild. They need that vitamin. And when that is denied, it's like you living inside of a house and never getting sunshine, right? You get kind of pale, right? Um, and so, um, am I making sense? I don't think this is drastic enough, but drastic measures in drastic times, um, this is just the next step. Um, we have become a small group of the population that is regularly attending um, services, about 15% of the population, and that includes Jews, Muslims, Christians that are regularly attending a Christian church. And now we have to think about how do we live in this time and space? What are you thinking? Pastor Jeremy, what is our time? Uh, go, to about, go to about 15 after, so 10 more minutes, and we'll break for dinner. Okay, thank you. Did you mean to say Christians, Jews, and Muslims are going to a Christian church? No. Did I say that? Did I say that? Yeah. No attention. <laughs> Could you catch me next time? Um... Christian Jews and Muslims go to a religious, their religious place of worship, yes. So, let me do one more metric for because you. The sir. biggest problem with this is that we can't count all those people that are out there. And they don't tithe. And they don't tithe. We follow. And they're not around to keep the nursery when we need them. We follow the money, right? 
I mean, now money is a resource that God created, but we're now in a, in a situation. Um, I mean, denominationally, this, this presents a lot of problems. It does. And, and this is my mind. We can spend all our time saying who the bad guy is, and I'm the bad guy, right? You're right. And it's, and it's, all, it's our issue. And we need to think this through and break it down into baby steps as to how to incrementally go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Let me go something else. We now um, have our young ministers, we're sending in, them into rooms where they've heard a thousand sermons. What do they have to say that those people have not heard? Am I making sense here? And the level of anxiety on that poor little minister it's just overwhelming, right? Um, we are now in a life cycle in the West where the church, where legal and theological precisionism is at an all-time high. You know, we got it down to this. Our ground intelligence of the non-Christian is at an all-time low. We probably have more cross-dressers in the community than ordained ministers now. How did we get here? And how did that happen on our watch and we not know what was going on? Right? So, I'm going to keep going unless you... I have a question. How many of the hundred in both groups are children? Who asked me that? I did. That's a good question. What's behind that? Because we do have a tendency to think of evangelism as evangelizing adults, but most people become believers as children. And I work with children on Sunday morning. I won't be there for your class because I'll be with the first and second graders. Because you'll be evangelizing I'll children. I'll be evangelizing. Oh, well, you get a pass this once. <laughs> this once. No, I think your question says, says a lot, right? The tender little hearts of our children. Just tell me what to believe, and then they turn into junior high schools. <laughs> and um, so very, very well said. I sense we have a problem, and let me take a go at what I think it is. Um, the Western church is in a bubble. I don't think I need to argue that case here. Um <coughs> And so, um, but we don't know how thick the wall was on the bubble that we're in. And so the very brave among us go to the edge of the bubble. Right, it goes to the edge of the bubble. We don't know how thick the wall of the bubble is, right? And we think if we talk way out here, or act way out here, we're actually um, in the wilderness. We're not. And what we do in the Western church, this is our habit. We come to the edge of the bubble that we're in, and then we go back to the center and get more precise. So this is the habit that we've been in for, I think, a number of decades now of this. And our precisionism is at an all-time high right now. 
And um, we've got things down to their nanoparticles. What we talk about in our meetings and with other Christians, and we're now in this cycle where we're walking on Christian carpet, doing Christian handshakes, drinking Christian coffee, and our only way to shoot the bullet is to get more precise. Am I making some sense? Now, by the way, this groove of precisionism, I think is a mile deep and has a gravitational pull to it. So even when we try to break out of this bubble, the, 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 the gravitational force in that groove, because it's so deep, sucks us in and under and prevents us from making discoveries in the wild. May I give an example? So Jim's been working with this group of ladies for how many years? Like a long time. Different, they rotate a lot though. You get new people coming all the time. When did you do your first tattoo interview? Today. So tattoos have been in your life, let's just imagine, for how many years? 15 years probably. In the last five years, really heavy duty, maybe seven years out, something like that. So um, it never occurred to us, and I'm with Jim, okay? It never occurred to us that there was something out here that needed to be discovered. Let me say it a different way. Um, Leviticus 19 says, don't put a tattoo on your body. And that's talking about ancestral worship and idolatry, okay? Are there tattoos that are like that? Sure there are. Guess how many times I get that in my email, by the way. Um, we were, we were able to quote the Leviticus passage, but we were not able to come up with the question, what are they? Am I making sense? Because of this. So what we need to do, in my opinion, is to research, and you can use whatever word you want for this, and I'm going to build a theology for this, by the way, with us this whole weekend. We research our way through the thickness of the wall. Did you see Jim do that? He made a discovery. Yes, sir. It's particularly hard for people like Presbyterians who want everything in good order to get through that wall. Because once you get through it, out there it's chaos. And you can't always explain everything by the... Uh, the, uh, you know, Westminster Confession, etc. type of thing. You just got to roll with whatever like you do. Listen, roll with it, and use the same language, pick up like terms, ideas, and stuff like that. But it's not necessarily going to fit back here in this kind of an environment. And you can take a lot of criticism for that because people will think, well, hey, you're not on the straight and narrow because you're doing this or doing that or saying this or that. And, it's dangerous out there. <laughs> <laughs> so two months ago, I was sitting in my bar, and six, six foot six men walked in, right? And and I know I can die at any point in my bar, and actually I'd be okay with that. You know, they'd say nice things, but <laughs> but they were all wearing stilettos and miniskirts, all six men, right? And they came and sat at the table behind me. And Paulette, one of the bartenders, leaned forward and said, 
Pastor Al, you'd like to get to know them, wouldn't you? <laughs> and I said, I would, hon. So I went over and she introduced me. She said, this is Pastor Al. What could go wrong? Right? <laughs> what, what could go wrong? And she said, this is Pastor Al. And they were like, <clears throat> and I sat down and I said, um, look, it takes a lot of guts to do what you're doing. Could you let me in and help me understand? And so we have a project right now called Come Meet My Cross-Dressing Friends. And I've got about 10 researchers working with me and we're trying to figure this thing out. An evangelist, one of the biggest dimensions of what evangelist is, it's the, he's the, he and she is the CAT scan on the culture. Discovering what's going on and finding out what's out there. If evangelism is love, you don't care if they tumble into the next world wearing a dress, right? You care that they get there. And so a dimension of evangelism is researching where we are and what it's about. And if I can give you permission to do that, you have it, okay? And then I leave town, right? So here is the habit that we are in. And we have carpal tunnel and our arm hurts. And we're sending our young ministers into rooms where they have heard a thousand sermons. Can I take this one more step and then I'll quit, Pastor Jeremy? This is not, um, I, I'm fiercely defensive of all our ministers. You know, you want to see a side of me, beat up on a minister. Um, but here's what our system's doing is we're taking our young people out of a brick and mortar church and we're putting them in a seminary. And then we're putting them through a credentialing process. And then we're putting them back in a ministerial association. And then we're putting them back in a brick and mortar church. And we can only think, imagine, and innovate within that metric. We now have more churches chasing fewer church transfers and more ministers chasing fewer staff positions. It's not going to get ugly out there, it is ugly. And so we have to begin to rethink the space and time that we're in, and this precisionism. Will you please say a prayer for us and we'll go eat? Lord, um, here are your dear people, and would you bless them in special ways. Father, um, in our mind and on our heart is oftentimes an individual.